0: let yes.
1: This week's Habipti Please, we're joined by uh, Dr. Nahid Dasani and we're going to talk a bit about COVID and health and like public health as well as just health in Canada and um, I want to talk a bit about harm reduction as well but uh, Nahid, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Can you tell my audience a bit about you and what you do?
0: Yeah, well, thank you for having me on the show. And um, thanks so much for creating spaces for these conversations they are more important than ever. So I'm a palliative care physician who spends a lot of time uh, providing health care for people who experience um, structural vulnerabilities like poverty and homelessness, for example. Um, I'm the founder of uh, Canada's first mobile palliative care program um, aimed at supporting people experiencing homelessness called the PEACH program, Palliative Education and Care for the homeless Um, and we're a mobile street and shelter based program that supports people with serious illnesses and people who are um, dealing with their end-of-life journeys in different ways and spaces and shelters and rooming houses and um, on the streets so no person falls through the cracks. Um, I spend a lot of time uh, speaking about these issues and advocating about upstream social and structural determinants of health and I have a passion to To end health disparities in our communities while deriving narratives of of compassion within our communities. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you. And um, talking about, I don't know if if you're okay with this, one big conversation that's been happening recently in Canadian politics is the medical assistance and dying legislation. And you touched a bit on about palliative care, um, but also just like in general, it's just a big conversation that's happening. And I think it kind of has split some people who maybe. Um, have studied gerontology or care about gerontology or beyond that, because this doesn't only impact older populations at all, the issue. Um, and I, I, my, my undergraduate degrees in health studies and gerontology at McMaster and like the big project they give everybody is like dignified dying, quote unquote. And what does that mean? And you're somebody who has um, come out to say that um, the government has abandoned duty to care for the most vulnerable when it comes to housing, pharmacare and basic income and how that is related to the made legislation. Could you talk a bit to the audience about that from your perspective?
0: Yeah, for sure. I actually had the unique opportunity to testify to the Canadian Senate a couple of weeks ago on Bill C7. Um, and actually, you know, what I talked about were my experiences on the front lines of the homelessness crisis in our communities, where I work in a world where you can basically coordinate, um, uh, medical assistance and dying for the, for people with it in an organized and efficient way in like two weeks. But it takes years to get the people that care for housing. It takes months months to get them income supports and, you know, weeks and months to get them mental health and harm reduction services. And, um, that is a morally distressing situation for me to be in, to think that we're better off, we're better at coordinating medical assistance and dying than we are at caring for people who are vulnerable in our communities. And I think, um, We've heard a lot from palliative care practitioners um, throughout the pandemic. Um, You know, there's often two sides. You know, there's one side that says we need to build up palliative care and then make medical assistance in dying more accessible. And then there are people who are saying, well, medical assistance in dying is its own kind of concept and a different kind of concept um, that deserves its own, you know, um, kind of space. And I took a totally different angle and just said, listen, like. Um, you know, the same energy that's been put into medical assistance and dying. We should put that same energy into housing people experiencing homelessness, you know, creating, you know, universal income opportunities um, and, you know, supporting up, upstream strategies like food security and, you know, pharmacare, care, for example. Um, yeah. And that's kind of been a, it's been a wild ride to be involved in that.
1: And um, I I, like one thing is like one thing you've said as well well as others who have been kind of talking and having these more robust conversations around this is that if people had certain needs met, they wouldn't choose to die. And then then you have people who are like, oh, in certain European countries, people will fly to those countries to have this like kind of uh, form of like death that they find more dignified. And and the dignified dying language is used. Um, And as a street physician, um, like what what do you see every day? You touched on it a little bit, but uh, like, do you think if social determinants of health were met, that there would be less people opting for medical assisted dying?
0: You know, I think it's important to say that I have seen and continue to see cases where people... Pursue medical assistance in dying because they don't have the adequate supports to, to to care for them, and they're choosing it to escape a society that's not providing the social supports that they need. You know, I often think of Bob, a gentleman with multiple sclerosis, who approached, um, uh, who who was referred to our palliative care team for pain management and complex wounds, and we treated his pain really well, got his wounds under control, but because of his illness he experienced depression which led to alcohol use which led to him being alone and he pursued medical assistance in dying anyway for that reason and then i think on the flip side of people who um have um chosen not to pursue maid when they got the social supports that social supports that they need i think of mary a woman with hiv who was on the brink of aids and was referred to our team and got adequate um you know social supports food security the emotional connections she needed and um and, and changed her mind from wanting made to not wanting made. I've seen it happen both ways, and I think we really need to reflect on these cases. I'm told by you know researchers in Canada that these these cases are few and far between, but I'm not convinced we've conducted robust methodology to really assess how you know marginalized people are going to be impacted by this, and it has huge ramifications on our society,
1: yeah, and as a qualitative researcher who like has been part of studies where we where we use narrative. I worked at Stella's place for a bit and it's, it's literally, you're taking narrative. I I wouldn't be confident in saying like the 10 case studies we use in a qualitative paper represent the findings for an entire like country or like, I would be compelled that the one that's different, there would be more of that one case that is different from just even a research methods perspective and a human perspective.
0: (laughs) Totally. And I appreciate your expertise. Like that's such a great point you bring up. And some would say Even if there is one person in Canada who chooses medical assistance in dying because they didn't have adequate social supports, this is worthwhile to talk about. This is a scary precedent to set if it's one or two or 2,000 or 20,000. like The number to me doesn't matter. It's really about the morals and ethics, the, the values that are associated with it. We've been so good at pushing this legislation around made through. Um, I don't understand why we're taking so long to provide housing for all and other kinds of social supports that people really need.
1: Yeah. Or like clean water or things that grind people down um, in certain communities with higher rates of um, suicide ideation that can now, one of the arguments is that it can now be facilitated in this other way. Totally. And, and speaking of like kind of gaps in healthcare, one of the big things you're one of the physicians who has been um, advocating for is some justice with long term care in Canada. And for people who are listening, so my audience is really mixed. Not everybody's like into looking at what's happening with public health, but everybody's usually into politics. Like, can you give us a little bit of background on like long term care? what it looks like in Canada and then like why are doctors and other allied healthcare professionals now coming together to say we have problems here?
0: Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, when you think about um, what's happened with the COVID-19 crisis, um, it has exacerbated an already existing um, crisis that was present in our long-term care facilities before the COVID-19 pandemic. And, um, it's, uh, it's gotten so bad that we have over, here in Ontario, we have over 3,500 deaths in long-term care. There was a point of just a couple of weeks ago where there was one person dying every single hour from COVID-19 in our long-term care facilities. And when you really boil it down, there are some systemic um, and, and social justice issues at play. And I'll tell you about a few of them. Um, the first is that we saw um, uh, 78% more deaths in for-profit long-term care companies. Uh, Companies, many people don't realize that there is a for-profit long-term care system that still persists in many provinces across Canada, including Ontario, and, and for-profit and not-for-profit um, uh, 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 homes actually get the same amount of money. It's just what they do with them is different. And we've seen a difference when, when profit is put over people. But it's also the idea that... Um, Many of the workers who work in long-term care are uh, who are often racialized women are actually kept poor uh, by you know low low wages. They're not giving paid sick leave. It's very precarious work. There were reports of of of, of women PSWs working in long-term care in Ontario who were actually um, making so little money that they live. They live in homeless shelters in Ottawa, and then they go to the long-term care facilities, and they work in multiple homes because they had precarious work, not full-time work. And then they they brought COVID nineteen back to the homeless shelter. Um, so there's that. You know that too. Uh, you know there's huge crises happening right on multiple fronts. Um, so those are just a few examples. And so I've joined over um, a thousand doctors across Canada, physicians, academics, and researchers to, to form Doctors for Justice and Long Term Care. And we took a stand online. We started an online movement. Um, we were trending in Canada for an entire day at number one with hashtag LTC Justice. For those who are interested on Twitter, um, and our nine point plan is is out there. And it's just the beginning of a lot of advocacy and change that we hope to inspire in long-term care.
1: And um, from what I understand, it's like a situation where like you can have a place like the beaches, because of the way Lynn's uh, local health integration networks distribute money and budget, like you touched on how maybe it's like the distribution, but you can have like a, a long-term care facility in the beaches have a very, very different kind of distribution of care versus in Scarborough, which is the, the within the same geographic region, um, for a public kind of LTC, where maybe um people whose families don't have uh, money to like put them in a private long-term care facility, just the the number of care, but also um you touch on something with the with workers who work um as personal support workers. Um, Migrants for Justice has been advocating a lot too around this, where they're so precarious, and because of the immigration scheme they come in on, they can be paid so poorly. And so one of the big asks is also like um, guaranteeing that COVID vaccines are given to everybody, regardless of status, especially those who work in LTC. What like what what do you see happening with the COVID vaccine distribution?
0: Yeah, so I mean, COVID uh, vaccine rollout has been um, a real showcase of what We've seen a lot of during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is really a one size fits all approach, which does not derive equity um, in our communities and does not address the needs of people who are more marginalized. Um, and right now where we sit, um, with the COVID-19 vaccine, vaccine is that we're waiting for international supplies to come into the country. But in the, me- in the meantime, um, we're seeing a, a country that's kind of just and a state of pause and we need to be using this time every hour minute and second really counts we need to be using this time to our advantage to addressing issues that will invariably come up once we do have supplies this includes addressing vaccine hesitancy we know that racialized communities and trauma communities have experienced trauma have mistrusted the healthcare system we need to convert that mistrust into trustworthiness. There needs to be campaigns, education, resources, um, and more supports for community groups who, who are doing that work. We need to be like really addressing, you know, creating the blueprints and the infrastructure for mobile clinics and, and pop-up clinics, drive-throughs um, that will allow us to hit hardest hit communities and, and increase vaccine uptake. We need to be building relationships with, you know, BIPOC leaders who have trusted relationships in community who understand the people that they support either faith groups cultural groups um so that we can leverage those over time um and and really we need to be having a wholesome you know public health communications plan that addresses you know the mistrust that's out there in the community because you know the typical kind of like french english tv commercials won't work to address the communities who may not have uptake Um, and it's it's one of the first few times like the Canadian healthcare system has been forced they have no choice they must address the pain and trauma that and and that communities who've experienced um, mistrust have experienced uh, for several years there's no choice because you won't get vaccine uptake otherwise so it's a very interesting time for for that for those reasons.
1: Yeah and you touch on like the the vaccine hesitancy and one of the listener questions was around um, how people can tackle family and relatives with potential comorbidities that are often downplayed in ethnic and immigrant communities. Uh, The person said a large number of COVID cases are listed as Alzheimer's and dementia as common causes associated with death instead. And, And how would this person have conversations with their family members who may have these comorbidities, but also not necessarily prioritize getting the vaccine for whatever reasons that are understandable?
0: yeah for sure I mean I think it's important to just you know really the you know the first step is to recognize why people have mistrust fear or anxiety around the vaccine and not to be dismissive so to be compassionate in our approach Um, and there's a lot of good reasons why communities have mistrust the Tuskegee experiments yeah I was about to say Tuskegee yeah yeah and the the, you know indigenous children were experimented on here in Canada when it comes to like food and nutrition not too long ago in our healthcare systems there's lots of reasons for mistrust trust the second is to be clear about what the purpose of the vaccine is so that's like getting into the science I and mean, we may not need to get into that into this conversation but you know, you know how was it created you know why was the vaccine rollout so quick there's there's really logical questions that people are asking and they deserve the answers to that of course this was you know approved that there was a lot of pooling of data this was really like large countries working together and that's why we were able to produce the vaccine so quickly um, and then the other thing is to be creative in our approaches to uh to, to address you know a a community so these are like the three c's and this means you know leveraging social media technology and you know helping people who are kind of asking this kind of question so how do you increase you know a a vaccine acceptance among someone who's like racialized or or, you know dealing with cognitive issues for example those are those are those are some tough layers of, of complexity and i think through compassion clarity and also through um creativeness we might be able to address that
1: yeah and um uh, the other big question that has come up, and I've been curious about too, is about um, with vaccine rollout. We see in like places like Chicago's one, and as well as Washington Heights in New York, where you have people who are wealthier than a lot of these like smaller neighborhoods and communities driving in, even up to two hours, and admitting it to get the vaccine and signing up right away because of the digital system that's been implemented, which is already a barrier. Because like how many people are on their computers all the time? How many, like I do my online banking for my parents, like they're, they're immigrants. Like it's just, it's just, they don't know how to like really use a computer very well. That's normal though, for my friends and like the community I grew up in, in Mississauga. And so how, like, how can the Canadian government actually ensure that like you don't have the wealthiest people hoarding or like kind of getting the vaccine because of these like digital barriers, but also it's It's just a little bit weird how, at least in Chicago, the deaths and like the socioeconomic status of who is dying versus who's getting vaccinated fastest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, Ontario has bought on to a use an online platform that um many of us have not used yet, but we understand will be, you know, serviced in French and English. And this behooves us to ask many questions. What if you don't have internet access? What if you don't have a computer or a smartphone? What if you don't have, you know, the cognitive ability to navigate complex systems? There's a lot of people in our communities and these are, you know, the kind of people who have likely been, the, you know, hardest hit by COVID-19. So there's even more reason for them to be vaccinated. Um There's also a lot of discussion about, you know, vulnerability and, you know, the fact that, you know, essential workers need to be prioritized, that racialized people need to be prioritized, people from low-income communities need to be prioritized. But guess what? There's a lot of people who meet a lot of those buckets at the same time. What about the heightened vulnerability? And, you know, a few of us are actually advocating now to think about people who meet multiple buckets of vulnerability should actually be prioritized ahead and then do we even have the robust data systems in place to be able to even assess who's getting the vaccine before other people who are getting the vaccine and 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 if we don't we need to make sure those data systems are in place because uh if they're not in place we won't be able to address them we need to be able to address them in real time remember we live in a, a province in many provinces and many places across canada experiences where we were told don't worry we don't need to collect race-based data around COVID-19. It's impacting all, all of us equally. I'm not sure if you remember those days, yeah. right? And yeah. <laughs> that, that was so not true. It still that is was not like, true. like what...
1: That feels like so long ago, but it was yeah, this it year. was first
0: wave, like first few months yeah. in. They were telling us that then, right? So don't tell us now that, you know, everyone's going to for sure get the vaccine in, in an equal and equitable way. Like, I, you know, no, we need the data and objective systems in place to prove that this is being done properly and we won't stop advocating until they will be.
1: Yeah, and Wellesley Institute put out a study that I'll link in the show notes about how Black neighborhoods, predominantly Black neighborhoods, but working poor neighborhoods, but when they mapped it out, it's also the neighborhoods that are also overlapping with the highest rates of evictions right now with the evictions board, which is no coincidence. Um, but the the rates of COVID are much higher because of the living situations, but also those TTC routes. When you really track it, because I did a transit episode before this uh, with Scarborough Transit, and they've been tracking things as well as TTC riders. Those transit routes are packed. It doesn't, and, and they're carrying essential workers. They're carrying essential workers who work in factories who work um, in, in long-term care, who just work these jobs, grocery stores, where they, they have to go to work. And that's no coincidence. And I guess um, our, our conversations moving forward with how we prioritize people who, who hit the multiple buckets, but also the fact that like there should be some maybe race-based or neighborhood-based data even collected. Are, are we making any progress on that front?
0: You know, I think there's pockets of excellence. You know, we've seen in Toronto like some really great granular data that has given us an understanding of which pockets have been hit hardest hit. For example, you know, Northwest Toronto and um and, and I think we need to celebrate those wins where possible. Um and and, and it just speaks to the need to continue to push government at the provincial and federal levels to be collecting this kind of data because it really informs us. It really makes a difference. There was a time in this pandemic where there was literal, literally media discourse blaming People who lived in, you know, low income racialized communities for the fact that there was higher COVID. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're not following the rules. Oh, they're not following public health guidelines. When in fact, when you, when we dissect it, we know, we obviously know now, many of us knew then that, you know, there were actually structural issues at play. This is where people who, um, who are poorer live. This is where people who live in more dense communities and, and homes live. This is where, you know, our essential workers live and they're not necessarily getting covid where they live that's just where they live they might be probably going to work and many of them are in production plants and factories and uber and whatever it is they're getting covid there and then they're bringing it and then they might be coming back home so it 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 flies the data is important because it it addresses stigma and bias And, and and there's a lot of that going on right now
1: and um, I don't know if this is like too much of a tangent or you can address it or not. But like one conversation I've been having with a friend of mine who's working on a labor book, and we've been kind of looking at the the Amazon outbreak and the meatpacking outbreak. But then we thought about how um, in April, there were 10 deaths of taxi drivers from COVID who service Pearson and John Tory made a show of like, I'm going to work with the taxi companies and we're going to figure this out. And uh, I come from a family of taxi drivers, and it's, it's something that has definitely shaped my life and my politics. And it's weird that after April, we haven't heard more, but like the Whisper Network in the community is like that 21 taxi drivers who service Pearson have now died. And there in New York, the New Yorkers Taxi Alliance has won the right to be part of the priority list. Because in Toronto, we see taxi drivers as part of public health in a way where, like, if you have somebody at a drop in, like one of the ones I work at, they can get transported to the hospital with a taxi voucher. Mm-hmm. And they're so integrated as part of transit right now in a way. And, and bus drivers, three have passed in Canada, two from who are public uh, bus drivers. One was a private kind of uh, organization driving like a hockey team or something, to my really? knowledge, or baseball or something. But, but how, like, how have, transit workers or certain types of workers not just been completely like almost dispossessed in a race do you think and like do people even think about workers that they don't see every day who service them as part of like society I don't know
0: it's a lot of out of sight out of mind and you know the, I it, nothing like gives me the, like just the ah like I just I just like get so upset when politicians say just stay home those mm-hmm. tweets are just so um John Tory. Uh, that, yeah, <laughs> and many, many more politicians oh, yeah. who say it. And I know they're speaking to a mainstream audience and they're trying to get that message out there. But for those who don't realize, and I'm sure many of your listeners do, staying home is a privilege, right? And it's it's a privilege to those who have a home, to those who have supports to be able to stay home, who have a job where you can stay home, um, and, and many other privileges that are, um, that are multi-tiered. And I see this in the people I care for and provide care for as well. So, you know, there are many um, groups of people in our society with less privileges and, you know, taxi and cab drivers um, definitely, you know, fall within that group. And that's why, you know, the work you do and the conversations you have are so important, but why it's also important to support, um, you know, uh, any effort to hold our, you know, these big corporate um, corporations to account, um, on, on, on keeping people safe. Um, you know, it was early, not just, just, a, just a few weeks ago where, uh, it was found that, um, 7,600 plus cases of COVID-19 have happened in large workplaces. And that was Toronto Star journalism that reported that. And um, only one employer had been fined throughout the whole pandemic. And it wasn't until then that the pressure started being put on to find employers and to uh, have some accountability in that way. Right. So lots of pockets of people who are experiencing vulnerabilities and are not getting talked about.
1: And um, you work with like you work in street medicine and we're going to I want to pivot a bit to that because I think a lot of people don't know the like the mechanics of what that's like, but also like uh, what's that like before covid and after covid i, I want to hear like way more about what you do day to day and like what you see and like how that's shifted and changed and even like uh you've had tweets about how every frontline worker should be offered free therapy and counseling and and kind of connecting it to that because what people are seeing right now especially you
0: yeah so i, I mean I, I would say that um you know the 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 homelessness crisis was very real in Canada before COVID. People were hanging by a thread and that thread has snapped. You know, the respite shelters and drop-ins have had to reduce services or even close to support physical distancing. And you've got kind of two groups of people living on the streets. You've got people who um, uh, uh, who have, have been offered temporary accommodations in hotels, motels or in isolation recovery programs. And, you know, kudos to my colleagues across Canada. who have set up these programs in very short um, uh, amounts of time um, I, I've worked in the Toronto programs um, in leadership in the region of Peel where we've set up these programs and it's been a really incredible experience a lot of people have been helped through that but then there is another group of people who live on the streets um, and in shelters who don't have trust with government and healthcare, and have chosen to stay on the streets and live in tents and and encampments and many people are familiar with the term encampments and if you aren't you know check out the encampment support network here in Toronto. Um, There are 14,000 people plus living in the streets of Toronto every given night Nowadays, during during COVID nineteen, for example. Um, And so, you know, it goes without saying that the experiences uh, for people who experience homelessness have been really challenging. This is a population that recent research here in Canada has shown is 2.4 times more likely to test positive from COVID-19, 20 times more likely to be hospitalized from COVID-19, 10 times more likely to be admitted to ICU from COVID-19, and five times more likely to die from COVID-19. And yet they were not prioritized in the first phase of vaccination. And we have not gotten real commitments on how they will be prioritized. In this next round or next phase of vaccination. And that's why the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness has come together to put out um, a call, to prioritize this group for vaccination. For frontline workers, it has been a trying time. There's been a lot of loss, a lot of grief, a lot of trauma, a lot of suffering. Um, and there's no place or space to really address that grief. We had um we've had a Canadian physician die by suicide in Quebec, um, uh, Dr. Corine Dion. And you know, her passing, I think, was a real um real you know signal that there's a lot of um suffering happening in our communities and we need to do better yeah it's been difficult for people
1: yeah and and i it there's doesn't seem at least from like my perspective but please correct me if i'm wrong a move towards um putting in counseling or like any supports for people who've seen the brunt of this
0: i think many depend. it depends where you work and who you're you know what profession you are and you know what kind of supports you get. What I hear by and large is people are offered you know three to six counseling sessions through their player if they have benefits, and then after that it's on them. And you know, we keep hearing about this, you know, we're all in it together, and so you know, there needs to be more supports. So I understand there's a federal program that has been started that has helped a lot of people, but um, you know, we're just beginning to address. To recognize, actually, the existence of grief, um, given that so many people have died, so many people have gotten sick, and frontline workers are not, just processing, starting now to process what they're feeling. You know, How will they feel You know, weeks, months, and years down the road? There's a pandemic of COVID-19 that's out there, but there's also a pandemic of grief that we need to start addressing.
1: Yeah, I've, I've uh, wondered with some of my friends who've come on the show too, like what happens after this, like, if you don't address like grief and trauma and loss in a proper way, like what happens to a society moving forward? That's like a question we don't have to tackle now. But it's something that like, I don't think many are sitting with. There's been immense
0: yeah. loss. Yeah, for sure. You know, as a palliative care doctor who deals with a lot of grief and, 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 and bereavement in the clinical work I do, I can say that it can really, when not addressed and supported, can really impact people's quality of life, their relationships, um, the, the, the trust that people have in society. Can you imagine at a population level what population levels of grief can do um, and what yeah. p- impacts that can have for years and, and decades and generations down the road?
1: Yeah, I appreciate you like uh, sitting with that and being somebody who does that. And I, speaking of encampments, that's like been a hot topic for for a lot of people in the greater Toronto area throughout like the world, I guess. But in the greater Toronto area, the encampments have been a topic because of well, there's the encampment support network. I'm going to link in the show notes um, and they have a great podcast called This is the Virus or We Are Not the Virus, but um and that's about somebody who's coming on, but encampments, how, how does public health like work or health distribution work? in an encampment so like as a doctor how do you explain that to like a a normal person who's like okay well how do these people get things like i I really appreciate that you brought up how because of distrust in histories people don't want to like and that can be their home too like that can be a space for them where they feel comfortable
0: and this has been a time to really um talk about you know people have the right to live where they want to and that that's an important right to be in encampment networks are are an unfortunate consequence of various levels of mistrust and trauma that exists in government and healthcare and how, you know, institutions in general have treated people, but are also an an, an important discussion and example of resiliency and what strength can look like in our communities. People who live in encampments, really inspire me. Um they're really it's really amazing to see how people can come together to support each other around food, around income, around healthcare. And yeah, so you know, the Encanton Network has been doing fundraising drives. They've leveraged relationships with trusted, you know, people to to have medics um go out. Um, you know, there's there's ways that the community has has been able to come together for food and other resources and all the while doing their own advocacy like, you know, podcasts and, you know, online, you know, petitions. And it's it's really really amazing to see and i think rather than seeing these as tent cities people need to see this as, as real um you know these communities as as sources of strength and and what human will and resilience can actually achieve um again sad that we have to be here to even have encampments but um just a real source of strength for me and a, a real inspiration in my day-to-day work
1: i really appreciate you like being a doctor who recognizes the duality and like the complexity of encampments because. Not every physician does, and um, a last thing I want to ask you before I dive into a few listener questions is: How do you, as a physician, um, challenge the views, uh, perhaps, or like have hard discussions with healthcare providers who may have more conservative or like less empathetic views?
0: You know, I think I think there's a real history um, in in medicine, like in many other areas, um, uh, in other sectors of of, of, of Racism of colonialism, um, of privilege, um, uh, of sexism, of ableism, and so um, you know it goes without saying that doing work that is derived around equity, human rights, and social justice puts you at odds with even just the history of where medicine and healthcare really comes from. Uh, on many fronts, and, and, and there's lots of examples of this. So I think some how I how I come to um, how I come to it is deriving um, the work in into in. Two, in 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 two ways, Um, censoring it all around compassion and empathy. So that has a lot to do with the narrative and storytelling. It's really hard to deny the fact that um, you know, for example, we were talking about MAID earlier, like, it's oh, fine, Canadians want MAID, but like, how are you going to deny the fact that we need also need housing, you know, basic income, harm reduction and better mental health for people? Um, you know, how are you going to deny, you know, my experience as a doctor on the streets with, you know, having to deal with, you know, someone who... Um, uh, died by, you know, an overdose death because they didn't have adequate pain control for their, you know, for their, for their, you know, widespread cancer, um, and, and, and the, the lack of palliative care access that had to do with that. The second is to really, um, strengthen your positioning, um, because the narrative and the compassionate empathy will only take you so far to strengthen it with data and science, right? So using uh, the same tools that are used in other areas of medicine and healthcare, research and evidence and deriving more of it. Um, that's why, you know, I'm always working on at least one or two health equity research initiatives at, at, at any given time. Just recently, you know, um, completed a research study based in the region of Peel where we, you know, asked people who were who are from South Asian backgrounds about what they thought of palliative care and why don't they get equitable access to palliative care. And it boiled down to the fact that the way we talk about palliative care is very much so, um, uh, uh, designed to support people who are white uh the the yeah. way we as health communi- yeah. communicators talk about serious illness journeys and palliative care and end of life and death just doesn't resonate with south asian communities to the point where like the word palliative care just doesn't mean much or it just means something really scary for a lot of people that's what my research showed when we published in bmc palliative care and it's actually conducting that kind of research that opens the doors the first step to having the kinds of conversations that need to be had um so i'd say those are two you know Know, big approaches that I try to try to balance and stick to to be able to address you know that the the, the background of medicine and, and derive better equity for the people I care for.
1: Thank you for sharing that, and I appreciate that you're doing that as well because um, I think it's hard sometimes. Like the the interview I did earlier today, we touched on it. Like people who navigate the world as like white or like like just second or third generation Canadian don't understand how even like language plays a role in like scaring people from accessing certain things or even like being, feeling safe and comfortable and accessing certain services.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I appreciate that. And and so like some listener questions I had to uh, wrap up is somebody asked, I want to hear um, about how the Atlantic bubble worked and why didn't all of Canada just do that, but also you've been on CP24 talking about how paid sick days would have worked. So if you could jumble both
0: of those in there <laughs> <laughs> well i think there's there, there are two that's probably two separate questions so i'll say one thing to say that when there's pockets of excellence across you know in the atlantic bubble um, new zealand australia you know there's lots of examples of things that worked um things did not have to be this way in ontario and in other provinces across canada i think the the, the big things that really worked were swift lockdowns um really even what someone described as quote-unquote draconian just really quick um uh, uh, not a lot of, not a lot of, uh, waiting, just getting it done, basically. Um, you know, isolation hotels were developed really quickly in, in, in Australia. You know, they've been developed here now, and I'm involved in some of this work here in Ontario myself. So it's great, but it was like, it was a little bit slow to get off the ground. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the strategies, you know, to, to talk about that could have really made a difference is paid sick leave. be switching gears to that. You know, um, people shouldn't have to choose between their health and paying their bills. And what people don't realize um, is that many essential workers, many people in our communities don't have the day that they need to go get a COVID test, that they can't, even if they get sick, they don't have the opportunity to, um, to stay home. In fact, a recent survey showed that one in four workers in the region of Peel, um, are going to work sick with COVID-19 and still continue to go to work. Yeah. And if they had paid sick leave, they wouldn't have to, for example. This is a, this is a provincial intervention that would have saved so much money. Um, given how costly hospital admissions and ICU admissions are, it probably would have saved us money in the long run. And um, so, you know, lockdowns and stay home orders are one thing, but but it's a totally different thing to provide social policies that can keep people healthier at a population level, particularly those who live on the margins. And we've yet in Ontario to see a provincial paid sick leave program that would that would yield the kind of benefits that would be able to curb COVID-19 infections. And that's really unfortunate because it's it's it would really help our hardest hit communities in a big way.
1: Thank you so much for that. And yeah, the lockdown measures, it is a privilege to stay home, like you said before, which is interesting. But also, I think a lot of these pockets of excellence had perhaps some like other prongs to their plan that allowed people to stay home. So like, I don't know if you can confirm this, but I think from what I understand, when we had CERB, numbers were lower.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, CERB is one thing to think about. And a lot of people, when it comes to paid sick leave, talk about the federal paid sick leave program, um, which is called CSRB. And there are major, uh, and, and many politicians have said, well, there's a federal program, but the problem is the federal program has many holes, um, uh, to it. Actually, uh, you, you, it, it's not as versatile. You can't take single days off. It takes weeks and months to pay people back. You have to miss like 50% of the week. There's all these like, little nuances that make it basically inaccessible for use um, uh, like workers won't use it during the COVID-19 pandemic because it doesn't help them basically yeah. so for our govern- elected officials to then say well there's a federal program you're obviously missing the point because we need a provincial program that is more versatile and that's what we need and we don't have that
1: Yeah. So that's yeah, it's it's something that people are still going to keep fighting for. And it makes sense. And another listener question for you was um, if you think as a physician that Canada might have the same issues with anti-vaxxers that the U.S. has. Yeah. um, And we've seen anti-masking protests, but I don't know the caliber of that.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think um, anti vaxxers existed and anti-vax sentiment existed well before the before the COVID nineteen pandemic. So it's important to say this is a, not a new phenomenon, and it's possible. Um, well, it, I I almost guarantee we won't be able to convince every anti-vaxer to vaccinate, and that's probably just. You know, true. Our sense is that this this group of people represents a small proportion of people across Canada, and it's not anti vaxxers that are that are going to affect our ability to you know move through COVID nineteen per se, because it's likely a small group, albeit a very disturbing sentiment, um, which we could get into if you want to. But it's more around vaccine hesitancy, right? There's probably more people in Canada due to mistrust of the healthcare system, fear or anxiety about the of how the vaccine was created or other issues that are hesitant um, about the vaccine. And um, my thing is we need to convert that mistrust into trustworthiness of the healthcare system. And we need to look deep in ourselves to think about all the pain that has been derived in our communities and all the mistrust that's happened and do better and we have no choice we have to literally do better now or we won't get the vaccine uptake we need so i think more people are vaccine hesitant than being anti-vaxxers and i'm always um cognizant and and try to clarify that people who are vaccine hesitant are not anti-vaxxers per se many people you're yeah. allowed to be worried about the vaccine that's fair and friends <laughs> and family who are worried my parents are worried. Yeah. like, like it's, it's fine you know it's it's understandable it's more how we respond to it
1: and like, also what I've always, always appreciated about you is that you do things like TikToks and like meet people where they're at because, um, yeah, like aunties and uncles, like on WhatsApp have all of these, like, that's <laughs> what, don't get the vaccine. You're going to like start walking funny or like become right. like not be able to have children. So like, that's a very different conversation to have versus people who are just like, um, no, like vaccines never. Um, so I appreciate you giving that clarification, but, um, a last Question: I would say from a person who submitted one is they wanted they wanted to ask you about as a physician, where do you think dental care and pharmacare like pharma pharmaceuticals, um, land on the spectrum of healthcare in Canada, and like and like our our doctors advocating for um, those to be part of our quote unquote universal healthcare system.
0: You know, I, I think it's important for people to remember that, um, uh, our Canadian healthcare system is publicly funded and privately delivered. And we have what was called Medicare, but it's only the first version of what Medicare was supposed to be. Um, Tommy Douglas, you know, one of, you know, can- greatest Canadian, um, as per the CBC. Um, uh, was uh, the creator of of our Medicare system. And there was always a plan to build out that system. So medical and hospital care may be covered through Medicare, but what about eye care? What about dental? What about... You know, uh, medicines like pharm- ph- uh, like pharmacotherapy that people need to support their diseases and 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 support their their wellness journeys. Um, and so, we have a long way to go um, to really live out the true definition of what Medicare really can and should be. Um, and 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 I think if you're interested in that kind of advocacy. Um, there is a, there are a lot of people who are advocating for a true Medicare system, including the inclusion of eye, dental and pharmacare. Um, and I would encourage people to check out Canadian Doctors for Medicare. My um, colleague, Dr. Daniel Raza, um, who's the chair of Canadian Doctors for Medicare, is doing incredible work uh, and doing an incredible job in advocacy around that. Um, the other thing. Um, uh, to, to, to to remember is to get politically active around election time, particularly seek out um, candidates and those parties that support the true vision of what Medicare can be. Uh, we have a long way to go, and I'm glad that people are are looking into that. Pharmacare is a hot button issue. Um, we are really at a very close state where we can get Pharmacare going in Canada. Um, but there seems to be, you know, some issues with political will to get us there. So we need all the pressure we can we can get to, to put that pressure on.
1: Thank you. And a last question I have for you, and then you can give us your socials, is how do you relate social justice to the work you do and to being a doctor in med- medicine? Because um, not everybody does. And although I'm biased and I think it should be, I'd love to hear what, why you do it and what brought you like into that political framework or like how, do, how they're a enmeshed for you.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it, it goes without saying that you know over 60 percent of what makes us makes us sick in our communities is social and i know people talk a lot about the social determinants of health and i think it's important that we talk about that but i don't like just talking about the social determinants of health in isolation because it describes a set of factors that define health through a social lens but it describes them as like risk factors or like static factors that cannot change but in actuality the structural determinants of health—what lies kind of at the roots of this whole system—is um, what's actually deriving inequities in the social determinants of health in our communities, and thereby differences in health outcomes. So, poverty, racism, xenophobia, transphobia, um, colonialism, ableism, capitalism—so so on and so forth. Right? There's a whole huge list there. And so, if you start with that mindset and you think about you know that, it's really hard to not get social <laughs> and talk about yeah. um, social justice. It's hard to not get political um, because inherently, you know, um, these issues are political um, at, at their roots. And so um, it's also important to think about how we can move our health systems from equality to justice. Our Canadian healthcare system is pretty good at equality, giving people the same things to be happy and healthy. We're not so good at equity, which, which means giving people what they need to be happy and healthy. And we need to be moving towards a justice-based healthcare system where people are resourced and empowered to make their own health and healthy lifestyle choices in the ways that they want to make them when they want to make them, how they want to make them um, without barriers to access. And that, and that to me is the journey that we're on. We're, 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 we're just starting to learn about equity and we're far away from justice. So there's a lot more work to do.
1: Mm. Thank you so much. And where can people find you online?
0: Yeah, for sure. So you can find me on um, Twitter and Instagram and Clubhouse at um, Nahid. <laughs> okay. that's N-A-H-E-E-D-D, and on TikTok at Dr.Naheed, that's d
1: Thank you so much. Um, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so you. much,
0: and thanks for everything you do. I'm I'm really excited about about this episode, but also um, what you're going to be up to next because I know there's big things on the horizon for you.
1: Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co hosted by Ryan Desponde. Music and art for Habibti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at Heb with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yella, let's grab some tea and shisha. just want to let you all know that Habibdi Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is super important to me and others because it's a progressive group of voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives that we see in right-wing and liberal media presently today. And so I want to recommend some shows uh, that are part of this network that I personally enjoy. So Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahal, as well as Feel Rouge, which is an Indigenous storytelling series that featured stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger Media is listener supported. So please head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe where you can get subscriber specific content.